Hello and welcome to another episode of the Ministry Minded Podcast, a show that seeks to marvel at the mercy of God that meets us in our messy ministries. I'm, of course, your host, Pastor Brad Gray. I serve as the senior pastor of Stonington Baptist Church right here in central Pennsylvania in a little place called Paxinos. And I am so glad to be speaking with you today. Thanks for clicking play. Thanks for downloading. Thanks for listening to Ministry Minded. Uh, There's a lot I want to get to today. I have lots of, I think, fun stuff. I don't know if it all perfectly goes together, but I think think you'll enjoy it nonetheless. Just some things that have been um, ruminating in me, uh, things I've been chewing on. I think hopefully things that will be relevant and applicable to you and where you are. Um, that's always the, 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 the motivation behind this show, this little um, semi-weekly, it's turned into an every other week sort of deal, where I've been able to just think out loud about things that um, I've been affected by, things I've been interested in, and hopefully things that can help you and uh, get you thinking perhaps deeper about your faith, deeper about your walk with God. And um, bringing you into more and more alignment, more more conform you more and more into the image of God's Son. That's the work of the Spirit on us. So hopefully I can I can help facilitate that in your walk with the Lord. So uh, as always, if you ever want me to cover something specifically, if you think there's a story or something that you would like me to interact with and just read or just share my thoughts on, send me a message, send me an email, get in touch with me, and I'd be glad to include that on an upcoming uh, episode and uh, always looking out for that. So if that is of interest to you, feel free to do so. So uh, we're going to hear from the sponsor, uh, Fresh Roasted Coffee. Feel free to purchase some of that. Use the code in the in the description below to get a discount off your coffee. But we're going to hear from that, and then we'll jump right into what we have for the rest of the show. So let's get to it. Do you like coffee? I know that you do, and that's why I want to tell you about Fresh Roasted Coffee. Fresh Roasted is a locally owned and operated coffee house right here in central Pennsylvania that is committed to providing the highest quality coffee on earth. They do so by sourcing only the freshest coffee beans and by using the most eco-friendly roasting technology in the world. Fresh Roasted's USDA certified organic coffee beans ensure that your coffee is consistently regulated at each stage of the production process and completely free of GMOs and harmful synthetic substances. Fresh Roasted Coffee roasts their beans per order with immediate packaging and shipping directly to your door, meaning that you get to experience fresh coffee at its peak drinkability. That's what I like. I was introduced to Fresh Roasted Coffee soon after moving to Central Pennsylvania, and I'm so happy I was because I think it's literally the best coffee out there. Their Blackbeard's Revenge blend is out of this world good. Whether you use a regular drip coffee maker or a pour-over or a French press, however you get your coffee fix, make it fresh roasted. Go to the link in the notes for this show and use the offer code GRACE10 at checkout. That's offer code GRACE10 at checkout to get a discount on your next order. Okay, so uh, what about this? I think... I think perhaps maybe maybe you're like you uh, maybe you're like me in the sense that you're almost a little bit weary of the number of articles and comments and commentaries and um, sort of you know exposés we could say uh, about social media and its detriments and its and its negative influence on us on society on communities on families blah 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 I I, I think those in several ways are 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 
necessary, but they're also it's it's we it, we almost we almost know all this. We almost know all this, even though we continue in a lot of ways to still ig- ignore all of this. And I think what is so fascinating is I I, I don't think it's original with me. I, I don't think I'm not trying to say here that you know I have some sort of you know revolutionary analysis but i think in many ways the social media bubble if you if i can put it that way is popping or is about to pop that you know like the real estate bubble you know from a couple of years ago it burst and it sent everyone into chaos i think in similar ways the social media bubble is is right right there um and it's almost like it's almost like you know how the way I often think about social media is, and and I say this as one who is still on social media in in one in one degree, but um, social media in 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 the large scope of things is almost like how smoking was viewed a long time ago. So you know, like back in the fifties, uh, and this is you know just me speaking generally as a millennial. Smoking was just it was it was prolific. Um, and it was everywhere. And in fact, when I was young, I remember going into restaurants where they still had a smoking section. I remember going to Denny's, <laughs> like on Sundays or whatever, and there would be a smoking section and a non-smoking section. And then this was just how culture was. It was genuinely or generally accepted in certain places, even though in in it, 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 in in the long term and the long term scope of things, we came to view cigarette smoking a lot differently. We came to view it as a negative as opposed to perhaps maybe not a positive but as generally neutral. And I, I use that example specifically because I think in some ways I think that's sort of how that's sort of that's sort of how social media is viewed nowadays too. It's if we're not negative if we're not negative on it yet or we're not overly positive on it we're generally neutral on it yeah you can you can have a snapchat if you want you could have an instagram if you want it's 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 fun but i I think what we're finding and i think there's more data coming on the idea that i think there's a lot of negative deplorable side effects that have sort of come out of this idea that we have to have constant connection constant um, information, constant um, sort of uh, notification. (laughs) Um, And I think everyone has written or shared their responses, their opinions, their, and all that kind of, there's been lots of publications that have done this. Um, So I know I'm not saying anything new. I I, I think we all are in, on some sort of spectrum of realizing some of the negative effects of social media and how it doesn't actually bring about what it promises to. Um, I think that's very self-evident. The idea that we can have these digital platforms of connection actually make us less and less connected from where we actually should be connected, which is all around us. Um, And I think that's very evident in a lot of ways. Um, What I want to do is just kind of read to you uh, uh, from uh, some selections from a bunch of different places that sort of have shared about this have written about this one is is a, is a friend of mine samuel d james he has a great Substack newsletter called digital liturgies he's actually writing a book too uh with that same name um and he was writing about you know the ways that facebook has changed because it didn't always start out this way per se but it's definitely grown into this 
into this state of affairs that we now find ourselves in terms of how social media is used, and I would even say how social media is ab- is abused. Um, but I like how Samuel writes this. He says, quote, Many younger Facebook users have no possible way of understanding how different the site was back in 2008. Once upon a time, the experience of Facebook was very much a social experience, a place where people really were put into contact with one another. There was a time when the structural logic of the website was to facilitate some kind of mutuality. This was evidenced by Facebook's requirement in the beginning that new users join a pre-existing college group as part of their registration. This process mapped Facebook users into a specific location and helped the website's users cultivate something genuinely local. The network requirement proceeded from a decidedly analog philosophy. This was a tool to connect people who were already in proximity with one another. So the tool begins by establishing that proximity. The requirement that new users join a local network did not last very long, though. Soon, the only membership that mattered on Facebook was membership on Facebook, end quote. And I think what is, it it is quite sort of like other world, we almost can't even put ourselves back into that almost like prehistoric version of social media connection. This idea that you were almost restricted in forms of who you could connect with and who was allowed within your groups by by ascribing to some sort of already pre-existing group on Facebook is, is <laughs> it seems, it, it's it's unheard of. And and I think what Samuel is getting at is that what started out as a, as as he says from as as a as a way to connect genuinely local people has now just the doors of that have been completely blown off the their hinges into where now it's connecting with people you don't even know you've never met you've never had an interaction with and 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 when he, and and I'm not trying to posit that we can somehow change that. In fact, I think uh, Brian Jarrell, writing over on Mockingbird, I think he states quite plainly and quite succinctly that quote social media as we know it is gone, and it's never coming back. <laughs> and I think he's really right on that. I think the ways in which social media might have started, there's no way to walk those back, so to speak. And I think there's all these different initiatives and movements on, you know, ways in which we can have a better social media experience. But I think, I think one of the things that I have found interesting, and one of the reasons why I'm no longer on Instagram anymore, and and, and I've, I've gotten on and gotten off Instagram, gotten on and gotten off Twitter, and so on and so forth. And I think, I, I think I know that several other people have as well. I'm not speaking as a unique that's not a unique experience. That's not a unique thing. Um, but I think what is what we're finding more and more is this idea that there that what you post on there is is not always what's true. It's what we is what we want to be true. It's this editorialized version of ourselves. Um, you know, it's that old. <laughs> it's that it's that old sort of. Um, it's not old, but maybe not, but it's, is that, is that paradigm in which, you know, you're, you're trying to get a family picture and you have three little kids and they are just losing it. They're losing it in ways that you can't even imagine. And his mom is getting mad because she's paid all this money to get this family portrait together. And you're just trying to get one snapshot. And if you were to take a picture, you know, one second before and one second after that perfect snapshot, it would be chaos, but we post 
the perfect one, of course. And I think there's merit to that. Of course, we would post that one. That is a good representation of who we are ourselves. But there's almost this subliminal message that comes across when that's the only thing that we are getting across, the only thing that we are we are consuming, and the only thing that we're promoting is these picture-perfect versions of ourselves, is that life isn't chaotic, when, of course, we know that's not true. And I think we're finding that out in, in more and in more ways that are deep, that are affecting. And I think what we're finding out is that these platforms of connection don't really offer connection. They just offer platforms of self-selling, self-promotion. Brian Jarrell, in that same Mockingbird article, he writes, quote, It's such a weird time that we can describe social media as both a dying mall and a place only for pretty people, and both are equally true. And I think what what we can soon find is that this this bubble is ready to burst and and i don't know what that means i don't I, i'm just offering you what I, what i think <laughs> um is there going to be a mass exodus from social media i don't know i think in some ways there should be in other ways i think that the way in which we consume media has been so fundamentally changed that it would be almost impossible to not consume media in the same ways um you know, gone are the days of just newspaper article writers. The, all those journalists that used to write columns in newspapers now are almost demanded by the requirements of their job to have a Twitter feed that they can constantly interact with their readers. And I'm not, so I'm not saying that it's all, you know, entirely negative, but I think there are long-lasting negative effects that this has on us as humans. Um, and there was that big article that uh, I'll just read from in just a, in just a second by Ian Bogost, um, an article for The Atlantic entitled The Age of Social Media is Ending. And this was a massive article in The Atlantic, and I know it made the rounds sometime last year. And he writes this, quote, It's seemingly as hard to give up on social media as it was to give up smoking en masse. Well, which, by the way, I didn't get that analogy of smoking from Ian, but it's interesting that he makes that same point. But he writes, continuing, quote, Like Americans did in the 20th century, quitting that habit took decades of regulatory intervention, public relations campaigning, social shaming, and aesthetic shifts. At a cultural level, we didn't stop smoking just because the habit was unpleasant or uncool or even because it might kill us. We did so slowly over time by forcing social life to suffocate the practice. That process must now begin in earnest for social media, end quote. And that might sound a little bit preachy, might sound a little bit um, doom and gloom, but I think there's something to the negative effects that social media has been having on young kids, their uh, their anxiety, their the ways that they think, the ways that they process, the ways that they connect, the ways that they interact with society at large. And I think we still won't know all of the side effects that this age of technological boom um, has had on us until many years later. And I don't want to sound like, you know, an, an overly negative prophet, but it might be years too late. Um, and I think that this is worth considering. Um, and I and I say this as one again, as one who is is on social media himself. And so I'm not trying to uh, preach and not practice. Um, I think there's regular times that in, in regular times that we should take stock of our social media engagement. What are we What are we doing? What are we using this platform for? Are we 
using it to encourage? Are we using it to engage? Are we using it to sell? Are we using it to promote? Are we using it to advocate? Um, what are we using these tools for? Because again, I, I would argue that I don't think these technological tools are inherently evil in and of themselves. Of course, like anything else, they can be twisted. They can be utilized for both good and evil. And I think we get consumed with the negativity of social media. And perhaps it's time for us to take stock of that, to do some introspection, maybe go on, you know, we could say a fast from those connection sites and make sure that we're connecting with people around us. Um, maybe it's time to take a Sabbath from social media, which is a good segue into what I want to talk about next, which is I was, um, I'll just be honest with you, I was really, uh, in a way, daunted by approaching my sermon text this past Sunday. So if you were at Stonington Baptist Church on February 5th, um, I was um, given the opportunity to preach on Hebrews 3 and 4. Uh, these two chapters um, are pretty, uh, there's some of the, I, I, I'm not going to, I'm not going to, you know, aggrandize those chapters and by saying that they're the most deep chapters in Hebrews, um, but they're definitely the deepest chapters, I think, um, that I've studied so far, only in the sense that what the author does in Hebrews 3 and 4 is he interacts with Psalm 95 along with Numbers 13 and 14 to show and prove the idea that, quote, entering into God's rest is the culmination point that is achieved by Christ alone, and that the only thing that denies us entry into God's rest is unbelief. And by the same token, the only thing that grants us entry into God's rest is belief. Belief that the work is finished. What's so fascinating is that he's arguing for this idea of rest, this idea of Sabbathing, and he's using the example of the Israelites going, or we should say not going, into the land of promise. So they did not enter into God's rest precisely because of unbelief, Numbers 13 and 14. And he's using the argument that David makes in Psalm 95, David using the same example to speak to his own peers at his own time, that entering into God's rest means clinging to the word of promise that is found in God's covenant grace. And then now the Hebrew writer is using the same illustration to say that they themselves, these Hebrew believers, are given the same opportunity to cling to the belief that Christ's work is finished and therefore Jesus is their true and better rest. This is what he says in Hebrews chapter 4 in a way that is so striking and so profound and I think it carries a lot of meaning both for the here and now and the hereafter. I think, of course, the Hebrew writer is talking about entering into God's rest as a hereafter sort of reality. It's the, you know, it's the paradigm of entering into God's eternal, everlasting rest and the blessed rest of, we could say, heaven. But I think there's also a here and now paradigm by which we can understand this rest in, in the sense that we know that the work of, of righteousness is finished for us on our behalf, and therefore, indeed, truly, we can rest. This is the rest of God that gives us relief. It gives us sanctuary. It gives us comfort. It gives us refuge in the here and now, away from all of those anxieties and worries and the fretfulness that is so inundating um, um, our world in mass. And I think what 
Hebrews 3 and 4 do is reorient the church in a way that is so demonstrably Christocentric. It is all centered on Christ. When he says in Hebrews 3 that if we that we enter this rest, if we hold fast our original confidence firm to the end, what is our original confidence? It's the confession that the Christ of God was crucified on our behalf. And in so doing, he made a way for us to be reconciled to our Father. What great hope, what great boldness that we now have because of that. I I think there's no truer need in our day than, as he says, striving to enter that rest, to enter the rest of God by faith alone. I encourage you to go listen to that sermon if you can. Hopefully you'll be blessed by it. I've been so blessed by going through Hebrews. It's been a wonderful joy of a journey in terms of studying, in terms of of diving deep into what the writer is arguing for. And of course, he's always arguing for the idea that Jesus is better. But I love what he does, how each chapter he is, I've used the illustration, and I think it's I think it's a good one. Um, just this idea is almost like he's coming up to a mantelpiece, and there's all these trinkets and trophies of Israelite religion, and he's coming up and taking one off, looking at it, examining it under the light of God's word, his living and active word, and he's showing how that trinket and trophy of belief and religion pales in comparison to who Jesus is and to what he offers and the gospel of grace. And uh, I encourage you, stay with me as we keep going through that sermon series. It's been a joy, and I hope you'll be blessed by it. What am I reading? Well, I just finished Christless Christianity by Michael Horton. Um, and can I just say that I think that this is the most needed book in our day? <laughs> um, I didn't discover this book. I think I've talked about this on a previous podcast. So if this is this is a repeat, I'm... Um, yeah, I apologize, but I won't really apologize totally because Michael Horton's book, Christless Christianity, is, I think, just insanely needed. Um, it was written back in 2008, but it's almost like he was writing prophetically in terms of where we are as a church culture, um, where we are in terms of what we need out of churches, out of pulpits, out of pastors. Um, go read this book. It's it's lengthy, it's in-depth, but it's so necessary as he's everywhere showing that the quote-unquote Americanized religion that is so um, so permeating our, our day is one that is downstream of works righteousness, is downstream of this idea that we are the ones who can better ourselves. And it's almost pushing Christ out of Christianity in general, hence the name. And we should be alarmed by that. It's, it's no light thing when the church is okay that the messages that they hear are, you know, in no certain terms, just happy, clappy, motivational speeches. If Christ is not the center of who we are and what we are as a church, then no wonder people are lost and confused about where their salvation lies and what makes it certain it is Christ alone. I've been doing a lot of reading and thinking about this, and I think that that's like, it's, it's not a new need. It's not a new sort of paradigm of church ministry that we need to enter into. It is the same as it was in Paul's day, where he says in the, his letter to the Corinthians that I decided to know nothing among you except for what? Christ and him crucified. And I pray with 
everything in me that I let that message be the only message that I am known by. And in that light, I pray that you will read Christless Christianity. It is a eye-opening book and a book that I think is needed and necessary for, for anyone who is in the church, whether you're a church leader or just a church attender. I think it is a necessary, necessary, helpful read. What else has been helpful? Well, I've really enjoyed these two articles that detail sort of the downfall and failure of the Thomas Jefferson Bible. Now, if you don't know what I'm talking about, this is a really interesting story. But I think the the long and short of it is that Thomas Jefferson, you know, of course, one of the founding fathers of this beloved country, um, famously, or perhaps we could say infamously, manipulated his Bible um, in order to make his own version. Um, and what makes this version of the his of you know the Jefferson Bible so interesting is that it was completely eradicated of any supernatural or miraculous elements. All of all of the miracles and the supernatural um, sort of revelations of who Jesus is and of who God is were were taken out. They were they were cut out as he copied and as he cut and glued and pasted this new Bible of quote unquote of his together. Um, so in one in in one article, this comes from the Worldview Bulletin, and it was written by Colin Brown and Craig Evans. They write this quote: Jefferson entitled his work "The Life and Morals of Jesus of Nazareth," extracted textually from the Gospels in Greek, Latin, French, and English. Like the philosophy of Jesus, it was literally a scissors and paste production. Jefferson had no compunction about cutting verses in half in order to eliminate the supernatural. He included the birth narratives, but cut out references to the virginal conception and the Holy Spirit. He likewise excised mention of the Spirit in the account of Jesus' baptism. The temptation story was omitted, as were narratives of miracles and exorcisms. The Sermon on the Mount was reproduced extensively. Jefferson included parables that emphasized social responsibility, denunciations of the Pharisees, and the prophecy of the destruction of Jerusalem. The Last Supper was edited so as to include the Johannine account, the John account, the John's version of the account of the foot washing and the announcement of the betrayal, but omitted the synoptic sayings about the bread and wine. End quote. That's sort of the way in which we can understand it. You can see again, he's what Jefferson did was look at the scriptures look at what was supernatural and cut that out and he keeps the scripture or the scriptural revelation we could say or we could say the biblical account of who Jesus was purely on an earthly standpoint and yet then by removing the miraculous what he what does he do he removes grace and by removing grace what do you have you don't have good news you don't have a gospel you don't have something that can reconcile man to God. All that you have now is what? An unapologetic moral code. <laughs> Writing for the Los Angeles Book Review, Ed Simon wrote this, quote, This is what's so unsatisfying about Jefferson's Bible. He has expunged the mystery, and mystery is the gospel's reason to be. There is undeniably, he continues, beauty in trying to love your enemies, bless them that curse you, do good to them that hate you, or in encouraging that whosoever shall smite thee on thy right cheek, turn to him the other also. But such commandments are impossible. At the very least, they are incredibly hard. 
fit for mystics and saints, but not the normal congregation, which is precisely the point. Christ isn't offering a benevolent code of morals. He isn't suggesting a code of morals at all. Rather, he's proclaiming our intrinsic fallenness and the necessity for God's infinite grace. Be therefore perfect, even as your Father, which is in heaven, is perfect, isn't a rule, it's an ideal, one we're bound to fail, as Jefferson himself did, spectacularly, end quote. And I think that that's truly sort of the nail in the coffin. If you remove grace, what do you have? You have nothing but law. You have nothing but a, a book of morals that's, that's no more powerful to effect change than the collection of stories known as Aesop's Fables. Doing so, you remove the Bible of its power. You, or at least <laughs> you can try to, uh, you can rob the Bible of its glory. The glory of the scriptures is, is in the fact that they enact change by the precise paradigm of resurrection, which comes through passion and death, the passion and death of Christ, which gives us the righteousness of God. Without grace, that is an impossibility. That is a, a reality that we can ever achieve on our own. And it's a, it is a, a great failure to presume that we fallen human beings can ever live up to that code, to live up to that standard. What should you remember then? I think what you should remember is that life is all of grace. It's free and undeserved and that all of life is happening all around you. So be present. Be with who you're near and be there in a way that they can see Christ in you. Thanks for listening. I hope you've been blessed by this episode of the Ministry Minded Podcast. Thanks so much for clicking play. If you haven't, go subscribe. Go check out all the other resources on graceupongrace.net. Thanks so much for your encouragement, for your support, for your prayers. And if you have anything you want me to cover, again, um, send that to me. I'll be glad to include that on the next episode. But until then... I'll see you next time. Blessings.